Welcome to the New Arab Voice, a podcast hosted by the New Arab, featuring unfiltered voices from the Middle East, North Africa, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's Friday, the 11th of June, and I'm your host, Gaia Karamatsa, coming to you from London. Here's what we'll be covering today. First, we'll look into how a new parliamentary coalition is threatening Benjamin Netanyahu's leadership of Israel. Then, stay tuned to hear a report by the New Arab Voices producer, Hugo Goodridge, on why the upcoming Iranian elections will significantly change the political landscape of the country. And finally, we'll be dedicating the last part of the show to Pride Month and what it means for LGBTQIA plus Muslims to be celebrating their queer history. After weeks of political wrangling, the Israeli parliament is set to vote Sunday on whether to install a change coalition and end Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's record 12 consecutive years in power. Yarev Levin, a Netanyahu ally, said on Tuesday a special session of parliament would debate and vote on the fragile eight-party alliance. The divisive incumbent Netanyahu has dominated Israeli politics for more than a decade, pushing it firmly to the right. So if Sunday's crunch parliamentary vote hands a majority to the coalition, which is united only by hostility to Netanyahu's rule, it would spell the end of an era for Israel. If all goes according to plan, Israel will swear a new government in on Sunday, ending a political crisis that inflicted four elections on the country in less than two years. The anti-Netanyahu bloc includes three right-wing, two centrist and two left-wing parties, along with an Arab Islamic conservative party. On paper, it holds a very weak majority, but Netanyahu has urged his supporters to shame right-wing lawmakers from the prospective alliance. I call on those who are elected with right-wing votes. I call on those who have a conscience and a way. Follow this way. Do not form a left-wing government. Such a government is a danger to the security of Israel and is also a danger for the state's future. If the new government is confirmed, Netanyahu's right-wing opponent, Naftali Bennett, would serve as premier for two years, after which the coalition's centrist architect, Yair Lapid, would take over. The Prime Minister's office also announced that a march by Jewish nationalists through Jerusalem would go ahead in a week's time. This could potentially re-escalate tensions with Hamas, the Palestinian Islamist group that retaliated against Israel's forcible expulsions and occupation of a neighborhood in East Jerusalem known as Sheikh Jarrah. Coming up next, Hugo Goodridge will take a look at what Iran's upcoming elections mean for the country's political trajectory. On June 18th, Iranians will head to the polls and elect a new president. And the result is expected to set the country on a new path, both internally and on the international stage. Since 2013, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani has attempted to guide Iran down a more reformist path, seeking diplomacy with the West rather than confrontation and trying to present a softer and less conservative image. 
After eight years of Rouhani, Iran now looks set to walk a different and much more hard-line path. Voters have a choice of seven candidates, but just because there are choices, it doesn't automatically mean there are options. The Iranian elections have never been free or fair. This is Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute, a US foundation that seeks to push diplomatic engagement and military restraint. They have, however, tended to be competitive within the limited spectrum that has been allowed, and they have certainly proven to be consequential. Previous Iranian elections have faced accusations of fraud, which in turn have led to outrage among the general population and mass demonstrations, most notably with the Green Movement in 2009. But meddling in the Iranian election starts well before the citizens cast their vote. Candidates for the election are vetted and chosen by the 12-strong Guardian Council, the members of which are chosen by the unelected Supreme Leader, currently Ayatollah Ali Khomeini. This system allows the Guardian Council, with the oversight of the Supreme Leader, to stack the candidates in a manner of their choosing, weeding out those deemed undesirable or incompatible with the leadership's current desires. There has been the design of it, in which very few people uh, have been allowed to run. You've had situations in which sitting members of parliament have not been allowed to run again because the Guardian Council, which is the body that vets these candidates, deemed them to be unfit. In this specific case, you had the former Speaker of the Parliament, Ali Larijani, who is an advisor to the Supreme Leader, be vetted by the Guardian Council and be disqualified, which was very, very surprising. You've had, in previous cases, the former President of Iran, Rafsanjani, be disqualified. Among those vying for votes this time round, there are technocrats, such as the former Governor of the Central Bank, Abdul Nasser Himati, a commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Mohsen Rezai, and a reformist candidate, Mohsen Moralezadeh, and a former nuclear negotiator for Ahmadinejad, Saeed Jalili. And finally, there's Ibrahim Raisi. He is the clear front-runner and has been declared by many as the presumptive winner. As the current Chief Justice of Iran, Raisi falls firmly in the hardline camp and is a favourite for the establishment inside Iran. But while this is an election for a new president, it is also being viewed as a stepping stone for Raisi to go from the presidency and into a higher office. And one of the candidates, the one that seems to be favoured by the hardliners the most, is Ibrahim Raisi, and he is speculated to be groomed to become the next supreme leader of Iran. He did run in 2017, and he did not fare very well. Rouhani beat him quite easily. And there has been speculation and analysis as to why he would do this again, because if he fares badly in this election, his bid for supreme leader's position will also be damaged. And the extreme narrow slate of candidates that have been announced may have been designed precisely to make sure that he does get a comfortable victory so that it paves his way for uh, taking over the position of the supreme leader in um, uh, in the next few years. But the Iranian people are no fools 
particularly when it comes to electioneering. And their disappointment is expected to be reflected in the turnout. Trita believes there is a significant likelihood that the participation rate, which averages at above 67%, will potentially drop as low as 40%. But a low voter turnout isn't a bad thing if you're a hardliner. The Iranian hardliners have tended to win elections fairly when the turnout is very low because they have very motivated and loyal following that nevertheless is a minority in the country. As long as they go out and vote, then you will have a degree of voter participation that is sufficient for the hardliners to win. When the rest of the population decides to go out and vote, then the hardliners almost always lose. This design is not only aimed at reducing the spectrum, but it's aimed at reducing the enthusiasm for the election so that people do not go out and vote. While the reformist government of Hassan Rouhani rode in on a wave of hope and promises in 2013, they will be leaving office with a string of disappointments tied to their administration. The unilateral US withdrawal from the nuclear agreement and the reimposing of sanctions effectively put an end to Iranian reformists' hope of broader negotiations with the US and the West. And the maximalist strategy of the Trump administration was everything that the hardliners in Iran needed. They have gained a tremendous amount of influence just in the last couple of years precisely because of the policies of the United States and the maximum pressure campaign. The fact that the United States under Trump withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal reimposed sanctions was a huge blow to the credibility and the influence of the centrists and the moderates in Iran. It was a vindication of the narrative of the hardliners. Even with a hardline president, countries like the US will continue to seek some form of diplomacy with Iran. But the tone of the negotiations and the rhetoric from each side will undoubtedly change. Inside Iran, a hardline government risks a swing to more conservative societal ideas, particularly related to women, even as popular opinion becomes more progressive. I am telling this because still the society is patriarchal society, but I believe in general this society, people are more progressive than the rural in the country. So uh, this patriarchal view of uh, women makes uh, a big, big difference. This is Fatima Hajhai Atju, a reformist member of the Iranian parliament from 2000 to 2004 and current executive director of the Nonviolent Initiative for Democracy. And unfortunately, the security forces in Iran, the state, see women's rights activists as a national security threat and crackdown on women's rights activists. So in general, it's a mixed picture, really. Under Rouhani, some progress was made in the field of women's rights and activism has grown but his administration has been plagued by accusations that promises were broken, including promises to create a women's ministry and appoint three female ministers. Fatima represents one of the successes in Iran, rising to the position of Member of Parliament, but usually the notion of women in government 
and in decision-making roles is a rare sight. It's an issue that Fatima wants to see resolved and in particular believes that it is high time Iran appoints its first female provincial governor. For me, I think this is very important. Except we have so many smart, qualified women to choose from and women can run uh, provinces. At least this is in my view. Of course, women's, if we look at from a sectionality point of view, women have different issue. Maybe not a female farmer calls for that, but I think the impact would be huge. Yes, it would be an excess step. Currently, there are just 17 women in parliament out of 290 seats. Securing places for women at the national level is vital, but as Fatima explains, the local level is another crucial area where women are underrepresented. This belief has to change to increase women's political participation at the level of city village council. Usually 6% of councillors are women. This time for the city village election council, 8% out of the almost 300,000 candidates were women, which is, to be frank, it's low for me. This is not enough and there is no restriction. And I would have expect at least 20% get uh, registered so there is as a candidate there is no restriction even if women choose not to run in local or national elections iran has options that can help steer the country to gender equality they can uh, what i called for an advocate for gender responsive budgeting and gender mainstreaming for instance my request from all candidates and all political parties, including reformist political party, was to call to reform budget to make sure the budget see needs of everyone, including women. The budget is the most fundamental enactment in any country. Iran's budget, it's not based on equality and by the gender responsive budgeting. Of course, of course, I don't say that to divide budget between men and women. But the point here is to make sure the economy is a caring economy, especially post-coronavirus. We need a caring economy. So I think this would be important and I would recommend everyone to work on this issue. With the coronavirus, the prospects of a new nuclear deal, sanctions and the economy, the issue of women's rights has largely been forgotten by the politicians during this election cycle. But that does not mean that the struggle has stopped. So and definitely once women's rights gets limited, gets attacked, Women are not going to be silent. They would be active. Women's rights activists was active during and very vocal during Ahmadinejad government. Women's rights activists very alive. We have a strong women movement in Iran, very vocal women uh, movement. And 
Of course, women's rights activists will continue more women become activists to defend their rights. On June 28, 1969, violent police brutality at the Stonewall Inn, a gay club located in Greenwich Village in New York City, sparked an international revolution. A year later, on the 28th of June 1970, the first ever Pride event took place in New York. And a year later, the first ever Pride march took place in London. Every year in June, people across the world celebrate, educate, and fight for the LGBTQIA community. I think it's important to remember and acknowledge the members of the community on the shoulders who we stand on and why Pride was in place. We need to know the stories of the first out gay politicians, you know, the activists that were out there. Celebrate artists like Jean-Michel Basquiat, Gauri Savant, who is a trans activist. So yeah, I think for me this year has just taught me to kind of think back and remember, you know, why do we have pride in the first place? Ahmed is a technician based in Glasgow, whose name has been changed for safety reasons. Ahmed is gay and Muslim, what many people believe to be a paradox. But his faith actually accompanied him to heal through the difficulties he faced throughout his life and helped him embrace his sexuality. I grew up in a very conservative Muslim family, however, a very loving family. Being one of four brothers, it was hard. I internalized my feelings. I put on a very macho front and went on to try and conform to society. I really struggled with my mental health. I got involved with police and gangs just to hide my sexuality. I then went on to get married to try and conform. And really, after two years of marriage, I had a, uh, a mental breakdown and I ended up going to Mecca, which, was, which is obviously a holy place for Muslim people. And that's where I finally accepted myself and realized, you know what, this is who I am. This is part of me. From then onwards, I decided to help other people that have been through a self-harming, self-destructive route that I went down and stop them doing that. So yeah, I felt really sort of empowered after going to Hajj and came back a different person. Now Ahmed works for Hidayah, which provides support and welfare for queer Muslims while promoting social justice and education around the queer Muslim community to counter discrimination. During lockdown, a lot more people reached out to Hidayah, finding it unbearable to stuck inside with people who may not be accepting of their sexuality. We had someone who was... During lockdown, they were a victim of FGM because their family found out that they they identified as lesbian. So, you know, it's taken that time for this person to slowly reach out to us because they've been so tra traumatized by the experience. And then at the same time, we've had people who, you know, we had to rush to rescue from honor-based violence. So, yeah, I'm not going to lie, lockdown has had... Um, sort of a, an impact on the queer Muslim community because if you think about it in terms of you know people haven't got access to services that they would normally have the NHS was struggling mental health services were struggling so a lot of people were reaching out to us. While there are conservative Muslim families that may reject the idea that Islam is compatible with varying sexual identities the history behind queerhood in Muslim-majority countries is not widely known. Scholars have pointed out that Muslims' views on sexual diversity have become much more conservative in the last century, 
while Islam for centuries has been much more tolerant than other faiths. So in addition to colonialism and opposition to Western exploitation, that's created like, this reluctance against many things Muslims consider Western. I think it's important to remember that Islam actually has a rich queer past. Third, gender individuals have existed during the time of the Prophet as well, and there's mentions of them in hadiths. In the 19th and early 20th century, men who had been persecuted for their sexuality in Europe often sought refuge in countries like Morocco, and long before same-sex marriage was even dreamed of in the West, male-on-male -male partnerships were recognized and marked with a ceremony in parts of Egypt and Oman. In some Muslim countries, even towns were kind of joked about for their kind of inhabitants being gay, places like Idlib and Syria being one of them, and even Kandahar in Afghanistan. So it just shows you that, you know, we do have a queer history. Literature, music and art from that historical moment in the Middle East laid foundations for queer culture everywhere. People like Abu Nawaz, a famous Arab poet that most people probably in the UK don't know about, but his works are famous in the Middle East. It's not just Abu Nawaz, we're talking about Hafiz and even some of Rumi's work. He dedicated over a couple of hundred poems to one man. A moment of happiness, you and I sitting on the veranda, apparently two, but one in soul, you and I. We feel the flowing water of life here, you and I, with the garden's beauty and the birds singing. The stars will be watching us, and we will show them what it is to be a thin crescent moon. You and I unselved, will be together, indifferent to idle speculation, you and I. The parrots of heaven will be cracking sugar as we laugh together, you and I in one form upon this earth, and in another form in a timeless sweet land. This is a poem by Rumi, the hugely popular 13th century poet. Some claim he was born in Persia, or modern-day Afghanistan, while others say he was from Iran. He received a traditional religious studies education in Aleppo and Damascus, including the study of Hanafi law, Quran, Hadith, and theology. He would later become an expert in Islamic law, also known as a mufti. Many scholars have spoken about the homoerotic nature of Rumi's poetry. Associate professor at Georgetown University, Amira Elzain, writes that Rumi's encounter with Professor Shams Tabrizi actually sparked Rumi's poetic nature and notes that all his poetry is addressed to him. His poems talk about love, sex and Islam. And, you know, it's, it's important that we recognise these poets and these scholars. However, over time, as I said, um, Islam has become more and more conservative and these ideas have just been removed from history. And a good example of that is Abu Nawaz. So while his works were in circulation freely until the early years of the 20th century, the first modern censored edition of his works were published in Cairo in 1932. In January 2001, the Egyptian Ministry of Culture ordered the burning of 6,000 copies of Abu Nawaz's homoerotic poetry. That's just one example of society deleting and erasing queer culture. Ahmed believes that the resurgence of conservatism across the Middle East cannot be attributed to his religion, which he believes could never stand for hatred and bigotry. Societies are becoming more and more conservative and the governments are fueling conservatism. And a good example of that is Turkey. You know, in 2015, um, Turkey used to have a pride march every year. And now 
um, the government has become very, very um, right-wing and conservative and are pushing against people's human rights. You know, we don't want people to wave the pride flag. You know, we want people to accept that somebody can be gay and that's fine. Whether it's Pride Month or not, Ahmed reminds us that it's important we look at our history so we can be inspired by those who stood for justice, peace and equality. A photograph from 2017 shows a woman with short black hair and round framed glasses waving a pride flag amidst a crowd of people listening to the Lebanese band Mashru Leila. This snapshot captures the moment queer Egyptian activist Sarah Hegazi's life changed forever. After a week that the photograph had been taken, Sara was jailed in one of the biggest crackdowns in Egyptian history, along with 57 other people. She was just one of the many who got caught up in the brutal repression tactics of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's regime. Sarah was thrown into solitary confinement and later spoke about how she was subjected to torture with electricity and was sexually abused. They threatened to harm my mother if I spoke about it to anyone, she said. After three months in prison, she was released and sought asylum in Canada, but struggled coping with the horrors that she had just gone through. On June 14th, 2017, Sara took her own life. Candlelight vigils were held from London to New York this week in memory of prominent Egyptian LGBT activist Sarah Hagazi. In her suicide note, Amnesty International said she spoke of her detention. The experience was harsh and I am too weak to resist it. Forgive me, she said. Almost a year on from her death, Let's remember her in all her glory, smiling, defiant, and waving the rainbow flag above her head. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself, Hugo Goodridge, and Nick McAlpin. Stay tuned for the next episode of The New Arab Voice, which will come out in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news from the Middle East, North Africa, and beyond.